So Job chapter 13, reading that chapter this evening. The flower fades but the, and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of it. Job chapter 13. God's word. Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ash. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence, and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, and the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So medical doctors and our relationship with them is a mixed bag. For one, medicine is based on rigorous science and testing to understand the human body, diseases, and their cures. Doctors do extensive training they swear the Hippocratic Oath, and they labor for their parents' or patients' best interest. Yes, common grace gives us confidence and gratitude for doctors. We rightly marvel at what they can do sometimes. And yet, on the other hand, despite the vast knowledge of medical science, there's still so much that is unknown. And any particular doctor may be uninformed on this or that topic. Some doctors don't take their oath very seriously. Others care for money more than their patients. 
Sometimes they'll prescribe you medicine for the kickback they will get and not whether you need it or not. Some doctors are quacks who are more likely to torment you than to fix you. Kind of like opposite poles, doctors can be wonderful or horribly harmful. And this issue is, thus the issue is more how do you find a good doctor, what makes a good doctor, and how do you get rid of a bad one? Well, Job has been the patient on the bed for some time now, and his friends have been the doctors furiously working on him. Well, it's time for Job to give another review on the quality of their medicine. So, as you'll remember, Job is only a third way through this fourth speech of his, and and he just finished that hymn about the dark and mysterious side of providence and God's sovereignty. And he sang this tune to counter the friend's elementary doctrine of retribution. Well, having sung their, or having addressed their doctrine, he now goes on to focus more on them and their behavior. He has some opinions about how they are being as friends. Now, Job did this back in chapter 6 when he compared them to a treacherous wadi, which didn't seem to get through to them, so now he's going to try again. Thus, he points out once more that he's not inferior to them. He's not the dunce, and they the brainiacs. Rather, his eye has seen it all, his ear has heard and understood. Now, this all refers back to the topsy-turvy destructive happenings in the hymn at the end of the last chapter. This, is, this was the judges going crazy, the oratories become, orators becoming mute, and the priests being cursed. These mysterious workings of God that pay no regard to human morality, Job reminds us that he has seen them all. They're part of his historical and objective experience. They're true, and you cannot just easily explain them away with some cutesy idea that everyone gets what they deserve and that every cloud has a silver lining. The hard facts of real providence are the rocks that the friend's doctrinal ship crashes upon. Yet with this point fully set, Job now transitions. He now mentions his desire, his determination to speak to God. He insists on a conversation with God so that he no longer has to talk with his friends. As you know, sometimes you're sick of hearing the same person and you just need to talk to someone else. This is Job. Though this conversation is not a chit-chat over coffee, but it is a legal one. This is courtroom terminology. Job longs to bring his case before God to find out why he is suffering and to prove his uprightness. Now, we've heard this desire from Job previously, and he's still on it. Yet before he teases this out for us, he turns back to his friends with some rather sharp words. He has a Yelp review that he's dying to post. And he does by likening them to doctors. They did come to comfort him, which is to administer medicine to the soul. In a real sense, the friends were spiritual doctors. They were like pastors. So what does he think of their bedside manner? Well, he calls them literally smearers of lies. The image here is not about 
paint, painting whitewash, but about rubbing in ointment. Just as today, a common treatment was to take medicinal creams or herbal lotions and to massage them in painful areas. Well, Job is on the table, and his friends are rubbing him down with Bengay and Icy Hot. And yet the lotion they apply is a lie. They're smearing him all over with fake news. The three, he says, are worthless doctors, vain physicians, They're quacks. The doctrine that they administer is snake oil. It's worse than a placebo. The only medicine they have in their cabinet, the only drug in their pharmacy, is a falsehood. And a doctor with a lie is a worthless quack. Thus Job says he wishes them to shut up. He says, please be quiet, and then you'll find some wisdom. Even fools who are mute can gain some wisdom. They need to zip it and just listen to Job. Next, Job rebukes his friends for speaking for God, on behalf of God. That is, they posture themselves as heralds and prophets of the Lord. They act as the defense attorney of God to represent him and defend him and to take up the case of God against Job. And the friends, as you'll remember, have done this quite a bit. Remember Eliphaz told how he had a vision from God for Job? Bildad relayed the advice of the sages as God's orthodox wisdom. And Zophar claimed to possess God's secret wisdom just for Job. This very much lands the friends in in the category of pastors or even fellow saints, speaking God's word, for the comfort of others. Yet in God's name, note Job says they utter malice and deceit. Their words for God are covered in sin and deception. This is harsh, for the last thing God wants in a prophet or a pastor is to speak falsely for him. It doesn't matter how nice or charming a pastor is, but a pastor without the truth is a quack. A truthless pastor is a traveling charlatan selling drugs out of his trunk. But how are his friends doing this? How are they misrepresenting God? He tells us, verse 8, he says, Will you show partiality to God? Will you plead his case? Now, it is axiomatic in Scripture that God hates favoritism and partiality especially in the courtroom. Well, the friends act like God's representative attorneys, and they're showing favoritism to God. They are biased and prejudicial towards God and against Job. Now, this might sound odd to us. You can wrongly be biased towards the Lord? How? Well, the Lord hates favoritism when it's shown for the poor and the weak, as well as partiality, towards the rich and powerful, which includes him too. For the Lord demands the truth, pure and unvarnished, free from favoritism. Therefore, the friends are defending God's justice, but God's justice doesn't need to be defended or exonerated. To defend God assumes something is lacking in him and that he needs help, which is never the case. 
Next, the, the friends defend God by making Job look bad, by highlighting Job's sins in order to assert God's purity. You're so bad, so God must be good. And yet you do not honestly defend someone by tearing down someone else. Besides, God is glorious irrespective of the moral state of humans. Our being upright or wicked does not reflect on God's glory. But the friends try to glorify God's justice by attacking his creatures, especially Job. But this is a lack of faith in God's justice. This type of theodicy is a deception. Proper trust holds to the stability of God's justice no matter how evil or noble humans may be. Indeed, this is the key problem as the friends want to make it all about justice. They phrase everything as either God is just and Job is wicked, or God is unjust and Job is upright. But this is the wrong way to phrase the issue. Hence, Job knows that it's not about justice, but it's about wisdom. He doesn't question God's justice. Rather, he knows he's upright. He knows God has treated him in wrath. And so now he insists on knowing the wisdom for God treating him, a covenant friend, in such a harsh way. In fact, it's the reasoning of the evil one to make it about justice. If Job's suffering is about God's justice, then God can be labeled as unjust and so be cursed. Job would fail. See, this is the cunning and deception of the retribution principle. It phrases everything in terms of justice. So if we are ever right, then God must be wrong. But this use of the retribution principle ends up cursing God, and so if Job adopts it with the friends, the evil one wins. Job, though wisely, will not give in to this, and he keeps it about wisdom. Sure, he wants his uprightness vindicated. He desires to be proven right over against his friends. But his burden is to understand God's wisdom in treating him in wrath when he's been a covenantal friend. Thus the faith and uprightness of Job or understanding of Job stands tall here. Therefore, since the friends are misrepresenting God, Job dishes out a sharp rebuke. He says, do you, do the friends think they can deceive God like one tricks a human? If they hide their favoritism deep inside, will God not see it? If God interrogated them, do they suppose that it would go well for them? Job's point is that acting like God's cheerleader doesn't blind, blind God to your faults. This is the piety that's all God talk. God cheerleading, all praise and wonder for God. Such a piety makes a brilliant showing on the outside of how God is with them and that they are for God. But too often, it is God manipulation to hide the impiety deep within. Praising God with the lips, while the heart is not right. 
This is how Job characterizes the friends, and he warns them that God will not be deceived by their cheerleading for him, but he will rebuke them. Indeed, because of this, he labels their advice as proverbs of ash, their defenses as piles of mud. They pontificate wisdom, but their counsel is disposable, transient, and worthless, like mud and ash. So again, Job orders his friends to zip it and to let him speak. They need to listen and to really hear him, not to hear what they want to hear or to hear what they project upon him. If they would just add some eloquence to their listening, then they might understand him properly. But now Job moves on to lay out what he would say to God. If he did get a chance to talk with God, if he could plead his case, this is what Job would say to the Lord. First, Job admits that it's risky. One does not simply address God as if it's a casual thing. For no human can come before God uh, without it being a lethal endeavor. As Job says in verse 14, this is him taking his flesh in his teeth and putting his life in his hands. What an image. To hold your flesh in your mouth is like trying to hold a piece of immaculate steak in your teeth and not eating it, a near impossible chance at success. Thus he admits in the next verse that God might kill him, verse 15. Now, this verse is difficult, and there's two ways to read it. One, as the SV translates, God may slay, but Job will have hope. Job has good confidence in God, even if he dies. Second, and it's the more, the more likely way that it should be read, is that though he may slay me, I cannot wait. That is, even though facing God is lethal, Job cannot wait anymore. He must talk to God now. Thus, the second part of verse 14, I will argue my ways to his face. This is Job's need to defend his way to the very face of God. Even though externally God's curse covers Job from head to toe, Job's behavior is upright and pure. Thus, this is a bold expression of Job's faith in God. As he says next, this will be my salvation, my deliverance from the curse that Job suffers and the judgment of his friends. This is Job's unwavering commitment to God. For he knows his only rescue comes from God. God may kill him, but that's okay. Yet if he can argue before God, his blamelessness will be vindicated over against his friends, and it will be shown that God's wisdom poured out suffering upon him for some other reason than for his sin. Even as Job feels forsaken by God, he looks only to God as his help and salvation. This is stalwart faith and steadfast commitment to the Lord. This is Job loving God for nothing. 
So he goes on to lay out now what he would say to God if he got a chance to present his case to God's face. As he says, he's prepared his case. He knows he will be vindicated to be found in the right. But he does ask for two favors from God. He says, two things I need from the Lord, which are given in verse 21. One, withdraw your hand from me, and two, do not terrify me with your terror. Job asked, now asked for this back in chapter 9. Simply put, God can relate to us by his holy majesty, which will crush us in fear. Or God can mercifully condescend to speak with us openly. Well, Job needs this mercy to speak with God, for the result would of this would that then God, Job would not have to hide himself from God. Now, this mention of hiding is actually an echo of Cain in Genesis 4. This is to hide in the terror of God's displeasure and majesty. But with God's descending, condescending mercy, Job can be open and frank with God. Then he says God could call to him and he would answer, or Job would speak and God would respond. A face-to-face conversation with God like this does not come naturally. As lowly creatures, we naturally shrink and cower before the transcendent splendor of the creator and lord of the universe. To talk openly with God as a friend is a gift that God must grant. Again, even though Job is insisting on arguing his case before God, he yet knows his place as the mortal before the immortal one. Thus he pleads for mercy to talk without fear. But with this wished-for dialogue set forth, Job begins to narrate what he would actually say, if he could, in verses 23 and following. He says he would ask God, How many are my sins? Why won't you at least show me my transgression? God, you hide your face from me. You treat me like an enemy. I'm nothing but a windblown leaf, a dry piece of straw. But you hunt me as if a foe to scare me off as if I'm a threat. You've ordained bitter agonies for me. You punish me for the sins of my youth. You hem me in on all sides as if I'm in isolation as a prisoner. You put my feet in the stocks, you fence in all my ways, and you outline every step I take. The divine scrutiny and inspection of God is constant and overbearing. God is critiquing Job as every move and step. So much so, he says, he's wasting away like a rotten piece of meat. Job is a moth-eaten shirt. When someone nitpicks and criticizes your every move, you know how unbearable this is. And this is how Job feels. This is what God is doing to him, and so he's quickly wasting away. And yet, note the character of this hoped-for conversation with God. First, it is very personal. Job laments how God has treated him like an enemy. God's giving him the silent treatment. He won't talk to him. He won't hear God's prayers. This is Job's hurt of him being forsaken by his divine friend. This is not an arrogant charge against God. Second, it is humble. 
Despite his confidence that he's blameless, no Job asks to be shown his sin. His suffering is, after all, the textbook curse for sin, and so he humbly remains open that maybe there is some some forgotten sin. Third, Job honestly mourns his pain. He says he's nothing. Job is like draw stride to God. And so why is God tormenting him? Why the unceasing scrutiny that is rottenness in Job's bones? Finally, Job makes no charge of injustice on God's part. He needs to know the wisdom of why God is hounding him so, but he shows no suspicion against God's justice. Wisely, then, Job holds together his innocent suffering and God's unblemished justice. Job knows that both of these can be true at the same time and not contradict. And this is precisely what the friends refuse to admit. By retribution, they insist that it must be one or the other. Either Job is upright or God is just, not both. Then they show partiality to God, acting like his unneeded cheerleaders, and declare God just by demeaning Job to be a wicked fool. In this way, the friends are not ultimately concerned about the truth, but they're chiefly interested in scoring points with God. If they rah-rah for God, then the Lord will smile on them and dump on Job. They think that they can deceive God by merely being brown nosers. They make the mistake that flattery is more important to God than truth. But it is not. As long as you sing God's praises, he doesn't care if you're false or dishonest. But how misguided this is. Thus the nobility of Job's faith shines bright as he's committed to the truth. He will not deny the truth of his integrity and his experience of God's mysterious providence by kowtowing to some simplistic understanding of retribution and God's justice. He will not compromise either truth, his uprightness, or on God's justice. But he will pursue the wisdom of God for how they can work together. And once again, This insight of Job is very instructional for us. Too often we confuse God cheerleading as real piety. We value zeal over truth. We praise God by tearing down his creations by scorning our fellow humans. We pretend to speak for God, to defend God, when he has not asked us to, nor does he need us to. And when we do this in counseling, in comforting each other during hard times, we become worthless physicians. We feel important as we rub our greasy hands all over the hurting saint, but as we smear them with lies, we're just quack doctors. We rush to the retribution principle to make everything about God's justice when the issue is actually about wisdom. Why we suffer does not call into question God's justice. Rather, it humbles us to realize that God's wisdom is higher and more unfathomable than ours. 
particularly, Job's faith helps us as he holds together him dying and his deliverance. To present his upright ways to God's face may kill him, but it will still be his salvation. But arguing the truth to God and God killing you, how can this be deliverance? It can because it vindicates the truth no matter if there's life or death. Indeed, by holding together these two truths, death and deliverance, we see a profound foreshadowing of Christ upon the cross. As Jesus hung upon the tree, the whole world was telling him he was an unjust and wicked criminal. Even the Father forsook Jesus and was an enemy to him. Thus, he must be guilty of the curse. Yet our Lord did not budge from the truth of his supreme righteousness. Jesus was silent. No deceit was found upon his tongue. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who crucified him. Christ cried out in true pain that his father was forsaking him. But Jesus was firm upon the truth of his righteousness, even as God slew him. Christ entrusted his soul to the God who judges justly, and he rested in God's wisdom. And the truth of Christ was vindicated by God in the resurrection. In the raising from the grave, the Lord approbated Jesus' righteousness. He vindicated the truth, namely that the righteous one suffered and that God is just. And he made manifest his wonderful and gracious wisdom to accomplish our everlasting salvation. Therefore, it is the truth of the resurrection that is our primary medicine as we comfort others who are hurting so deeply and are so bewilderingly lost. As we sit bedside of the aggrieved, we cannot tell why they are suffering necessarily. We should not jump to rebuke them for their sin. We cannot tell or we cannot let their hardship make us cast aspersions on God's justice. The retribution principle should not be our go-to painkiller. And we will not understand God's wisdom always in such loss and tragedy. But we can administer the hope of the resurrection, the diamond truth that Jesus was raised for us, the guaranteed down posit that we will be raised with him. This is the truth, and at the end of the day, it is the only truth that is the honest and effective medicine for our hurting souls. Yes, beloved, this is how we are effective doctors of the soul to one another. We gaze at the resurrection of Christ and our certain resurrection in him. For from the resurrection flows the comforting grace and tender love in Christ that no matter what happens in this life, Christ has already won, and that you are safe in him. God's wisdom prevails, and he has in store for us something far greater than we can ever imagine. May our faith then ever be founded upon the truth 
Let us not be quack doctors, but good doctors of the resurrection that lift high Christ, the justice of God, and the wisdom of God, that even though we do not understand it now, we will someday understand it for his glory and our good. Amen. Let us pray.